This week, coronavirus questions raised in Alta Mesa EP Energy bankruptcy cases. Pioneer Energy files Chapter 11. Windstream and Unity reach agreement in principle on master lease dispute. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Raksha Manjanab. And I'm Alex Brosman. Later this episode, Peter Washkowitz and Lev Bredo from our Covenants team discuss pandemic bonds and some interesting wrinkles related to certain convertible notes. It's Sunday, March 8th. Judge Marvin Isger confirmed the EP Energy's plan of reorganization after hearing continued testimony from the debtors and ad hoc group of 1.125 lien and 1.25 lien note holders experts addressing Judge Isger's concern expressed over the quote significant change in data from what appears to be the coronavirus affecting oil pricing and whether the court should consider that impact in determining feasibility, which has been heavily contested in the cases. The debtor's expert concluded that the coronavirus outbreak would only have a short-term impact on the oil prices and does not change his prior conclusion that the debtor's plan is feasible. The ad hoc group's expert testified that beyond the immediate oil demand shock, the coronavirus would have a longer general macroeconomic non-oil supply impact, pointing to China's importance throughout global supply chains. While both experts agreed that NYMEX strip pricing is the best predictor of oil prices, the ad hoc group's expert focused on using the most current strip pricing and reiterated his testimony from last week that the reorganized debtors would be unlikely to have the ability to refinance debt ahead of the 2024 maturities. The capital markets have fundamentally changed for oil and gas exploration and production companies and have been essentially closed over various periods of time, including right now, he testified. This was not the only time coronavirus came up in a Chapter 11 case this past week. Counsel for Altamisa purchaser BCE Mock blamed the sale not closing by the Feb 28 deadline on the coronavirus. Gregory Pesci of Kirkland & Ellis, representing BCE Mock, told the court that the purchaser currently has a financing commitment from UBS, but the closing has not occurred yet because, quote, certain aspects of the financing became impractical. Pesci said that he was currently unable to provide a specific hard date for the sales consummation. He remarked that in the last week to 10 days, quote, market conditions have become quite intense and the oil and gas markets in particular due to the coronavirus. Nevertheless, BCE Mock is fully committed to closing on the deal and, quote, we have a lot invested in it. Windstream and Unity announced an agreement in principle this week resolving all litigation brought by Windstream in the context of its Chapter 11 cases relating to the party's master lease dispute. Additionally, Windstream entered into a planned support agreement with its first lien creditors, pursuant to which the company's existing funded debt would be reduced by more than $4 billion, annual debt service obligations would be substantially reduced, and the company would be provided with access to exit financing to enable it to pursue its strategic goals after emergence from Chapter 11, a press release said. Under the settlement, Unity would invest up to $1.75 billion in network investments for Windstream through 2030. Unity commits to paying Windstream $400 million as a cash transfer consisting of equal quarterly cash installments over five years, plus an annual interest rate of 9%, which amount may be fully paid after one year, 
resulting in a total payment ranging from $432 million to $490 million. In addition, Unity has agreed to acquire certain dark fiber contracts from Windstream. To fund the acquisition, Unity has consummated a sale of common stock to certain Windstream first lien creditors, yielding proceeds of at least $244.6 million, which Unity would then pay to Windstream, plus an additional $40 million to Windstream. In total, the fiber assets currently generate approximately $29 million in annual OIBDAR, the company said in a press release. The PSA notice stated that as of March 2, the PSA has been executed by holders of more than 72% of first lien claims, approximately 37% of second lien claims, and more than 39% of unsecured notes. After the PSA announcement, second lien creditor Contrarian Capital filed a letter to Judge Drain asserting key, quote, infirmities in the proposed settlement and planned support agreement, stating that the settlement and PSA are or will soon be broadly opposed by almost all creditors that are not parties to the PSA, which includes first lien, second lien, and unsecured creditors. A hearing has been scheduled for April 3rd on the proposed settlement. San Antonio-based oil and gas drilling production services company, Pioneer Energy Services, filed for Chapter 11 protection in the Southern District of Texas. The debtors entered bankruptcy with a plan of reorganization supported by holders of over 99% of Pioneer Energy's secured term loan and approximately 75.9% of the company's unsecured notes pursuant to a restructuring support agreement. The debtors state that the proposed plan would delever the balance sheet from approximately $475 million of funded debt to approximately $213 million. In addition, the plan provides for the infusion of up to approximately $203 million of new capital consisting of secured debt and new convertible notes. Under the plan, unsecured notes would receive 94.25% or 100%, depending on how equity votes, of pre-dilution reorganized equity in exchange for their claims. In addition, an ad hoc group of note holders has committed to purchase exit new secured bonds in the principal amount of approximately $78 million and to backstop approximately $118 million of the $125 million new convertible notes. In exchange for the backstop commitment, the notes group and management would also be entitled to an 8% premium payable in additional, quote, premium convertible bonds in approximately $9.6 million principal amount. The new money proceeds would be used in part for distributions called for by the plan, including the payment in full in cash of general unsecured claims, approximately $175 million in principal amount, plus an applicable premium call protection feature of term loan claims and any ABL claims not previously satisfied by the $75 million DIP ABL. And on the island of Puerto Rico, we had a busy week with the Permisa Oversight Board filing an amended joint plan of adjustment in the Title III cases for the Commonwealth, the Puerto Rico Public Buildings Authority, or PBA, and the Employee Retirement System of the Government of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, or ERS. The proposed plan would reduce the Commonwealth's debt service by 56% to $39.7 billion from $90.4 billion, inclusive of COFINA senior lien bonds. 
and includes a global resolution of certain disputes, including the constitutional debt limit and invalidity litigation, the geo priority litigation, and the PBA lease characterization litigation. The amended plan follows the initial Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment, which was filed in September 2019, and incorporates the terms of the February 9 plan support agreement, which the Oversight Board entered into with creditors holding about $8 billion in GEO and PBA bonds. The amended plan has been signed on to by holders of approximately $10.5 billion, or 58% of outstanding GEO and PBA bond claims, according to the Oversight Board as of the filing date. Also, on February 28th, the administration of Governor Wanda Vasquez presented a draft revised Commonwealth fiscal plan to the Permesa Oversight Board that assumes in fiscal 2021 the launch of a $1 billion disaster relief working capital fund, a $146 million pay raise for Commonwealth employees, and $334 million to cover municipal health system and pension payments. Vasquez said on February 29 that the fiscal plan draft takes into account the negative impact of recent natural disasters, but at the same time recognizes the positive impact that the federal recovery and reconstruction funding will have on Puerto Rico's economy. Legislation needed to execute the RSA for the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, or PREPA, remains a key sticking point between the Oversight Board and the Commonwealth, as the debt deal's prospects remain clouded by government opposition to a contemplated transmission charge to back new securitized bonds. In an exclusive interview with Reorg, touching on a range of PREPA-related issues, Oversight Board Executive Director Natalie Jurasco stressed that the failure to pass the RSA legislation raises the risk that the utility could be placed into a creditor-focused receivership, a development that could prolong a Title III bankruptcy process that already poses challenges to the aims of transforming the island's energy system. Juresco said that there is a risk that creditors get fed up and at some point go to the court and say either lift the stay or discharge the case, and then they seek a receiver. The longer this goes on, the higher the risk there is of that happening. She added that receivership could also trigger a covenant around Prepper's legacy debt that could drive rates well above the transition charge contemplated in the RSA that has sparked the opposition among legislative leaders and Governor Vasquez. On Tuesday, a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit reserved decision after hearing oral argument on the expedited appeal from Judge Laura Taylor Swain's opinion, denying the motion of a group of ERS bondholders seeking the appointment of a trustee under Section 926 of the Bankruptcy Code. The Circuit Court panel directed much of the hearing with targeted questions as well as some pointed remarks, including First Circuit Judge Sandra Lynch calling the ERS bondholders a little greedy. Similar to Judge Lynch's stance in the other recent Title III appeals, she remarked, This is a very complicated set of cases in front of us, and there is, in the mind of at least one judge, a need to write narrowly. In the course of arguments, Judge Lynch urged the parties to address the core issue before the court, whether the district court abused its discretion in denying the bondholder's motion. Additionally, the panel generally took the stance that the First Circuit's January 30 decision related to Section 552 of the Bankruptcy Code limited the scope of the arguments on appeal, and the court ultimately directed the parties to focus their arguments accordingly. The January 30 decision concluded that the ERS bondholders' pre-petition liens did not attach to revenue received by ERS after filing its Title III petition. 
The First Circuit panel did not indicate the timing of a decision. However, in pursuing an expedited appeal, the ERS bondholders requested that the court rule prior to March 30, which is the expiration of the statute of limitations, to bring avoidance actions. And on Wednesday, Judge Sween granted the Oversight Board's disclosure statement scheduling motion and the amended mediation report's proposals and scheduling motions, both subject to certain revisions. The judge emphasized in her ruling that the Oversight Board is the sole entity under PROMESA authorized to file a plan of adjustment, and notwithstanding vigorous opposition from various parties, including the monoline insurers and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors in the Title III cases, Judge Swain said it was appropriate to give the Oversight Board an opportunity to be heard on plan confirmation. The judge explained that the disclosure statement hearing is a preliminary step in that process, adding that whether the plan will pass scrutiny is a question for another day. Other top stories last week were Key Energy announces extension of forbearance agreement until March 6th. Declines in PV10 values could affect ability of Denbury Resources and Whiting Petroleum to fully access revolving credit facilities. Mallinckrodt calls False Claims Act lawsuit filed by DOJ, quote, improper in light of companies' ongoing suit against CMS. And now here's Jim Holloway with The Week Ahead. Well, thanks, Alex. Good morning, everyone. The interesting times, and I mean that in a pejorative sense, continue in the financial markets. Who would have thought we'd be quoting a 10-year yield and basis points? Nevertheless, us older folks have been through several iterations of this. So while we're waiting for more visibility, here's a few things to keep us occupied. Monday, March 9th, Sanchez Energy, the trial in the Gavilan Comanche operator ship dispute. A second-day hearing in McClatchy, omnibus hearing in Mission Coal, and a final pre-trial conference in Windstream. We have earnings, too, with CPI Group and Ascensa. Tuesday, March 10th, the aforementioned trial continues in Sanchez, and there's a disclosure statement and omnibus hearing in PG&E. Earnings from McGraw-Hill Education and Key Energy. Wednesday, March 11th, UCC organizational meeting in Kraftworks. Cash collateral motion in Verity. Earnings from UNFI and Del Monte Foods, which bravely floated a secured bond offering this past week, which should also price this coming week. Thursday, March 12th, this is a busy one conditional disclosure statement hearing in Alta Mesa, a sale and combined DS plan hearing in McDermott, final dip hearing in Murray, a second day hearing in Rent Path, omnibus hearings in Bumblebee, and a DS hearing in Jimboree, among other things. And there are earnings from Chaparral, Northern Oil and Gas, Unity, and Party City. Friday, March 13th, second day hearing in Pier 1, and an emergency hearings in Approach. And that is all she wrote, folks. Thanks, everybody, and back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. And now, moving on with our deep dive with Peter and Lev, who are going to talk about some interesting recent covenant situations. Thanks, Raksha. So uh, today, we are going to talk about three uh, niche uh, niche topics that kind of we rarely cover in covenants, but if, that have become very topical and are, are quite interesting. Uh, first, Lev is going to talk about uh, pandemic bonds related to coronavirus. 
Um, then I'm going to talk about um, converts. And then I'm just going to finish up with uh, some PV10 analysis. So uh, Lev, who actually just joined the Covenants team uh, two weeks ago and is, uh, is very passionate about muni bonds and sovereign bonds, wrote a really interesting article today about uh, these new pandemic bonds. Uh, given all the news about coronavirus, it's uh, super topical. Uh, Lev, so first of all, thanks for joining our team and writing this uh, very interesting content. Um, could you kind of just give us a quick overview of what these pandemic bonds are? Yeah, absolutely, Peter. And, and thank you for, for having me on. So, you know, this is a really interesting structure. In 2017, the World Bank issued two series of these pandemic bonds that pay out uh, based on various pandemics occurring. And that money is used to fund the World Bank's pandemic emergency financing facility. Um, it's it, Interestingly, the bonds actually have coronavirus-specific provisions because the virus is, is actually a derivative of prior um, viruses like SARS that have existed before. The bonds pay relatively high coupons. The the A-tranche, which is the safer one, pays six-month LIBOR plus six and a half, while the riskier B-tranche is 11.1 over LIBOR. And, and they mature in July of this year. Um, and they've traded way down with the B being between 60 and 70 and the A in the 90s. Wait, so when you say uh, the safer of the bonds, so if I'm an investor and I buy these bonds, am I hoping, and I know this sounds uh, callous, but am I hoping that the virus spreads or that the virus is cured? That, that, that's, that's a really good question. And you're, you're very much, if you're an investor in the bonds and, and you have a long position, you're very much hoping that the virus uh, is, is cured and, and stops. Um, you know, to provide, take a step back and provide a bit more context on, on the structure, it, it's, you know, in, they're very different from, say, a corporate bond where the company um, borrows money in order, to, you know, to use it in its business. Here, money goes from the investor to an SPV and kind of just stays there. And as an investor, you're hoping that that's going to be the case over the three-year life of these. Now, if certain conditions are met regarding uh, various viruses hitting uh, certain thresholds, then there's there's different payouts, and w- which differ for each type of bond um, b- between the two tranches. And and so and, and again, as the investor, you're getting coupons that, that are a combination of premiums paid by the World Bank and then also some investment returns. Oh, interesting. So with the two tranches, you said one is safer than the other. I assume that means... Um, one does one kind of maybe has like a, a sub portion devoted to coronavirus, and one kind of is fully co- fully covers coronavirus uh, costs. Yeah, I, I think I think that, that that's a, a really good way of looking at it. Um, you, know, you know, the computations are are a, a bit complicated. And we we get into the the weeds in the article, but basically the A tranche, you have a really interesting provision specific to the coronavirus where it caps the payout at sixteen. In 16% and two-thirds. So that's the max of principal you could lose if there's a coronavirus outbreak. The B tranche, though, there, there's a, a, a bit of a sliding scale, but um, in, in the event that there is a sufficient number of deaths worldwide, the payout could be 100%. And, and so that full $95 million tranche could be, could be um, wiped out from the investor's perspective and then go to fund relief efforts by through the World Bank. Oh, interesting. And and you so you had mentioned the the, the coupon, but uh, I'm assuming the the B tranche is is significantly higher. What what were those again? Oh, sure. On, on the B tranche, the coupon is a six month LIBOR plus eleven point one percent. Oh, okay. So and these things are, are maturing relatively soon. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly right. Um, on July fifteenth. So so just a few months out. Assuming, let's say next week, the coronavirus is cured. N- no more coronavirus. What happens? 
to the bonds, what happens to the funds? So you, you would think that if the virus stopped next week, it would be a re- relatively straightforward analysis. But uh, unfortunately, it's somewhat more involved in that some of the conditions have already been met and others are actually measured on a rolling basis. For instance, the, the total case amount that, that's com- computed that way. And so it's possible that even if the virus ended next week and stopped spreading, that, that given the way the rolling period is calculated, it's possible that it would it would capture the prior spread that's already occurred and thus could still potentially hit a trigger. All right, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Lev. I, 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 two days ago, I didn't know that these kind of bonds existed, um, and it's, 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 it's a very interesting uh, area of the fixed income market. So thanks for that. So, and, and, you know, speaking of, um, of interesting areas of the fixed income market, I, I know you, you recently published a couple of reports on, on companies with uh, interesting convertible issues, uh, Tudor, Perini, and Global Eagle. I'd love to learn a, a bit more about those. Yeah, so, um, you know, we rarely look at uh, convertible notes just because they, they, they never have, uh, they don't have covenants in them. It's, you know, it's just kind of based on conversion prices and, and just kind of issues that we would never get into. Uh, however, um, both Global Eagle and Tudor Perini have these converts in their structure, and um, and, and they each have um, provisions that kind of could make could kind of almost literally topple these structures. Um, Tudor Perini, for instance, uh, it has a series of convertible notes that uh, that come due next year, um, and its revolver, which it it, it has it currently it, it has drawn on. Um, it has a springing maturity to December 2020 if the company has not fully redeemed these convertible notes by then. Um, now, the problem is um, the convertible notes in that indenture, they cannot be redeemed until 2021. Um, so um, obviously the company cannot redeem them. Now, they could obviously purchase them in the open market, but the company's revolver provides it minimal capacity to do that. So it literally does not have any options to deal with it. Um, in fact, on their recent earnings call, uh, management said that they're they're going to have to look to either refinance or replace the revolver, which, I mean, you know, we kind of, you know, mentioned that in our article. That's kind of like a catch-all. These companies can always do it. It's just surprising that this company has literally been brought to the point where uh, replacing their revolver actually is probably their best option. But, you know, aside from that, is there anything else they, they could do? There, there really isn't. Um, you know, so the way you get rid of bonds is you either redeem them or you purchase them in the open market. The converts, uh, the convertible notes themselves, are not uh, do not allow Tudor Perini to redeem them, and the revolver does not allow them to purchase them. So they're kind of in this in this quandary. Now, Global Eagle is actually a little different. Um, Global Eagle, they, they have converts that are due 2038. Uh, they're currently trading at uh, 38 cents. Um, and what is strange with them is um, the convertible note holders have a put right in 2022 where they can put the bonds to Global Eagle at par. Um, given where they're trading, um, and, and the conversion price, I think was you know seventeen dollars or, or something around there. The, the the stock is trading at forty cents, so um, it is more than likely the case that the note holders would put the bonds in 2022 at par. Uh, Global Eagle just uh, got went through amendments on its on its credit agreement and it, its uh, secondly notes where it's an event of default if they fund that put right in 2022. So. Like Tudor Perini, they, they just don't have many options. The Both the, the credit agreement and the, uh, secondly, note indenture were amended to um, pretty much eliminate all, um, all capacity to purchase the convertible notes in the open market. So 
uh, Global Eagle uh, pretty much is forced to leave these convertible notes outstanding until 2022, at which point note holders will most likely put the notes at par to the company and the, that which would trigger an event of default under the debt documents. So um, I just think these are two really interesting cases where convertible notes actually uh, are, uh, have played huge parts in kind of how the, these companies are going to deal with their capital structures, whereas like normally they wouldn't because there are no kind of covenant considerations. So, um, you know, two very interesting companies. Uh, they're, they're both relatively small, but uh, super interesting topics. Now, now in Peter, where did those convertibles trade? Um, so Global Eagles uh, trade, uh, We I wrote the article two weeks ago, they were trading at 40. Um, so that's why I say it's probably likely that the, the bondholder, the note holders would put the bonds at par. Uh, Tudor Perini's, the, the, the converts were uh, on March 2nd trading at 97, uh, which likely hints at that Tudor Perini's have to do something with them and the, and the you know investors are expecting them to do something because they would be um, they would not be as high if if, if 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 investors were not expecting something to happen. Got it. Got it. That, that makes sense, Peter. And um, shifting gears a little bit. You, um, tell me about this uh, PV10 issue with uh, the oil and gas sector. Sure. So, um, as most people at Reorg know, I, I don't love the oil and gas industry myself. But um, I, I figured this is actually a, this is a really interesting issue. So, um, all these energy companies, they have um, all the, their debt capacity under their senior unsecured notes are generally based on um, net consolidated um, tangible assets. Um, now, what that is mostly based on is PV10, which is you know the uh, you know uh, the future the future discounted price of uh, you know their oil and gas reserves. Um, oil and gas obviously has been uh, you know the prices have been declining. So as these companies are are kind of reporting fourth quarter earnings um, and in their 10Ks, they're kind of giving their new revised updated PV10s. All of them have been significantly lower than um, than they were last year. So we kind of looked at uh, seven different companies. We looked at Gulfport Energy, Whiting Petroleum, Range Resources, Denbury Resources, Entero Resources, Oasis Petroleum, and Southwestern Energy. Um, it was just kind of a, a quick, broad overview of what their PV10 is, how that translates into uh, tangible assets, and how that translates into debt capacity, and whether that affects their ability to uh, to, to draw on their revolving credit facilities. And what were some some of your findings? So our findings actually were not as interesting as I had hoped, but but still um, illuminating. So um, the average PV10 decline for those companies were uh, was 42 percent. Average uh, tangible asset decline was 38 percent. Uh, average reduction in debt capacity, 38 percent. Average reduction in lien capacity, 33 percent. However. Um, a lot of these companies' bonds are structured, so they have credit facility baskets that are based on the greater of a fixed a dollar amount or a percent of uh, tangible assets. W most of these companies, uh, the fixed amount of the fixed amount component of these baskets has been set so high that take like a range resources. They have a three billion dollar revolver. Um, their credit facility basket uh, gives them capacity equal to the greater of $3 billion and 35% of ACNTA. So their tangible asset value could go to zero, and they would literally still be able to fully draw on their revolver because the fixed basket is up to $3 billion. So we found that for most of these companies, um, a few of them are kind of, you know, coming closer than they were to not being able to fully draw on the revolver. But for the most part, they're still able to draw on the revolver. Um, two companies, uh, Denberry and, um, 
and Whiting Petroleum need to rely on uh, interest coverage tests to be able to incur, um, you know, to be able to fully draw on their revolvers. But uh, for the most part, uh, because a lot of these baskets have been set so high, um, they, they, at least for the short term, they, they still are fully able to draw on their revolvers. So not as interesting as I had hoped, but still a very, uh, very valuable exercise. And it, it, was, it was interesting to see how the decline in oil and gas prices uh, directly kind of affects uh, debt and lien capacity. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up uh, for our for our governance conversation today. Um, if anyone is uh, interested more in reading more about uh, the pandemic bonds, the convertible notes, or uh, PV10 declines, um, check out all of our content on the site. Uh, thanks a lot. Back to you, Raksha. Thanks, team. And thank you for tuning to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. I'm Raksha Manjanath. This has been The Week in Reorg.